That Jesus doesn't save you. The Jesuses that we make up, the, the problem with those Jesuses that we make up is that they never contradict us. They never challenge us. They never have power to speak to us, to put us in our place. Those, the Jesuses that we make don't have the power to change us. Because no one would ever create a God or create a Jesus that would actually put us in our place, right? Like our fantasy ideas, our fantasy worlds in which we oftentimes create, who's the king of our fantasy worlds? Always. It's us, right? If someone comes in, contradicts us in our fantasy world, we stomp them out, right? We have power. We're the king of our fantasy world. And so whatever type of Jesus or God that we oftentimes create that comes into our fantasy world that we make never challenges us, never contradicts us, never questions us, never puts us in our place. And therefore, because of that, he has zero ability to ever bring about change or transformation into our lives. That's why we want to look at Gospel Mark. Because Mark has this ability at just refining down, simplifying for us who Jesus is. To show us that the God that we need to know, the God that we need to meet, the God that we need to be introduced to is a God that's far bigger than the God that we would ever create. It's far greater than the God that we would ever envision. It's far more powerful and able to actually change us and transform us than the God that we would ever fabricate. That's the God that we need. That's the God that we need to be able to see and understand. And not just simply run from or simply try to stomp out the way the Pharisees and the scribes in the religious system did. But the God that we would see in the Gospel of Mark would ultimately be the God that we bow our knee to and worship and honor and love. That's the God that we need to be able to understand and see. And that's one of the reasons why. It's the main reason, I would say, primarily, why we're trying to understand and look at the Gospel of Mark and uh, try to understand who Jesus was. Now, Mark is the shortest of all of the gospel accounts. Uh, one of the words that appears a lot in the gospel of Mark is the word immediately. Mark's very short, very succinct. He's quite a few chapters less than every other gospel account. Mark really cares a lot about what Jesus does. There's very little. If you have one of those Bibles that has like red letters, uh, if you compare the gospel of Mark to some of the other gospel accounts, you'll find that there's not a lot of red letters in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, because Mark really cares a lot more so about the actions of Jesus, what he's doing, the things that he's uh, actually you know, doing in terms of his ministry, and, whatnot, and not so much about what he says. That's what Mark's really concerned about. Um, a lot of scholars and theologians actually believe that Mark was the very first Gospel account writer. So in other words, when John wrote, or when Mark wrote this Gospel account, uh, it was, it was, he was just mainly writing this as a means to try to capture and encapsulate really the life of Jesus for people in the first century uh, to help them to understand what was going on uh, when Jesus was around and the way he lived and the way he acted and the things that he did and really just exactly who this Jesus was so that the people to whom he was writing would actually be responders and worshipers of this true and living God. That's what Mark's desire was. And it's actually believed that a lot of Mark and a lot of Matthew um, have direct quotations from the Gospel of Mark. Because Mark is believed, like I said, to be their very first Gospel account writer. Now, Ma Matthew and Luke, uh, they carry on and add a lot of additional details to their Gospel accounts. Because, obviously, they're writing to different audiences and whatnot. Um, one other little bit of trivia and information is that when Mark wrote this great book, 
It was actually believed that Mark is uh, writing under a lot of uh, direct relationship with the Apostle Peter. Um, this Mark also, by the way, is actually the cousin of Barnabas, right? So if you know who Barnabas is, Barnabas was a guy that was a good friend with Paul the Apostle, went on a lot of the missionary journeys. Uh, Mark was this guy that actually had, was, was a cousin of Barnabas. And so, so Mark was part of this Christian community in the early church, um, and others believe that Mark was probably a young guy. Um, there are some speculations uh, of, as to Mark being a guy that was in the garden um, when Jesus was arrested, um, when Jesus prayed and he was ultimately arrested. There's a description actually in the Gospel of Mark of a guy who uh, runs away. As he's running away, someone grabs his cloak and he runs away naked. So a lot of scholars are like, I think that's Mark. Like Mark was the dude that ran away naked in the garden. Like that's him. That's the guy. He makes his cameo appearance in his own gospel. And uh, so it's interesting. There's a lot of like little tidbits of information about that. But that's the main gist of what we're trying to drive at and understand with regard to the gospel of Mark. Is that Mark is really this account about the life of Jesus. And what Mark wants us to understand is very are a lot of different elements about Jesus is but one of the things that we find out first and foremost that Mark uh, writes this account because he wants for his audience obviously first century uh, hearers and readers but all, obviously all the way down through time so that anybody else who's been impacted by the life of Jesus or been impacted by popular culture that they would actually have a proper understanding the definition as to who Jesus is so that even though we live in a culture where Jesus is in, where he's popular, it's, it's cool to talk about Jesus, it's cool to make references to Jesus, at the same time, those Jesuses that we oftentimes see appear within modern culture are not oftentimes the Jesuses that have any correspondence or any type of link with the biblical Jesus. So, so Mark writes to make certain that our understanding of who Jesus is is actually anchored to a historical figure. That actually came and did something for us that Mark's going to continue to unfold for us throughout his gospel account. So with that being said, what I want to take a look at this morning is that there are at least five main things in the first few verses, around eight verses that we'll take a look at here today, that Mark really wants us to understand about Jesus that we're going to try to take a look at. There's probably a lot more, but these are at least five things that we're going to try to take a look at. We'll see how far we can go trying to understand these things. The first thing that Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus is the king. So he, he, he wastes no time, like I said, remember, um, in some of the other gospel accounts, John, kind of like the big picture dude, like he starts off, he's like, in the beginning. Like, you know, he goes way back to even before creation began. And he's like, in the beginning, before there was nothing. Like, there was Jesus. And like, big picture guy. Like, he's the guy that is always thinking about, you know, big thoughts. And, and then you got, you know, Matthew. He's like, you know, and it all began with a genealogy. And he starts kind of reading, uh, in essence, from the Jewish phone book, all right? Um, Luke starts with another entry point of the story. Well, Mark, he just jumps right in. He's like, look, we're going to get to work. We're going to talk about Jesus, and that's it. So he jumps in, and he spares no time. And just in the preface, he just starts off by saying this, that Jesus, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's a lot of stuff that I want to unpack here. Uh, we'll come back to some of them. But the first thing is this. He says the beginning of the gospel. In other words, he's going to tell, he's starting to tell his story. The narrative that Mark's going to unfold for us begins with Jesus. And he describes Jesus this way. Jesus, 
Christ, and then he says the Son of God. Now, I want to unpack this because for some of us, we, we read these words very quickly and they don't make a lot of sense to us because we just say them very quickly. In some ways, it reminds me back before I was a Christian, I was, a, I was part of the Catholic Church, and I remember when I would sin, I would go through confession. I'd sit down with the priest and confess to my sins and be like, okay, my son, you're a horrible dude, and you need to go pray like six Our Fathers and like say three Hail Marys. So I remember going to sit down like several times. I like sit down on the bed, so I'm like, okay, I got to power through like six Our Fathers. And I'm like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, holy. And I just like say it as fast as I could six times through. And, and, and it was, and somehow in my mind, I'd be like, okay, I'm like all clean because I just said six Our Fathers and like three Hail Marys. I'm all good now. But in reality, at one point, even before I was a Christian, I thought, how can this be working? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. It's no meaning whatsoever to me in my heart whatsoever. I'm not like saying these things and being moved emotionally by them. They're just, I'm just, they're just words to me. But huh, I believe it. I think it's actually cleaning me. Now, it doesn't clean me. But the point that I would make is, is that we can say things sometimes that just rattle off our tongue that have absolutely no meaning. So we might say something like this. Jesus Christ, Son of God. All right, great. What, what does that mean? I don't know. Right, so I want to try to take a look at it. So first of all, Jesus, it's his name. Jesus, it's his name. Yeshua. Um, the uh, Hebrew would be like Joshua. If your name's Joshua, you actually share the name of Jesus. All right? Yeshua means Jehovah, or God, is salvation. So God is our Savior. That was the name of Jesus. The name Christ, or Christos in the Greek, Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for that, um, was oftentimes a word that was synonymous with a king. So it's very important to understand this, because for some of us, we just read the name Jesus Christ, and we think, first and last name. Like, Jesus, what's your last name? It's like, Christ. Like, no, that's, that's not his last name, all right? Christ is actually his mission, like what he came to do. Christ means he was king. He is king. And this is basically derived from the Old Testament, where, you know, we just finished the book of Ruth, and what we see in the book of Ruth is that God actually places in the lineage of this, this amazing woman, Ruth, and her uh, saddened mother-in-law, who's often you know, actually transformed and changed, uh, the lineage of a king. So King David begins to play into the lineage of them. So David becomes this great, um, uh, mighty, anointed, there's that word, anointed king. So when a person would become king, they would pour oil over them, and that pouring of oil over a person was this idea of being anointed, that there's something unique and special happening to them, that God is empowering them and anointing them for a special task. In David's case, it was so that he would be king. And this same idea would be that at some point in the future, God would raise up another king that would come out of the lineage of David, and this great king would basically surpass King David and be the king of all. He'd be a great king. So this king... Mark spares no time to say, want to know who the king is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the king. He's the one king that he actually has he's been identified. We know who the king is. The speculation has ended. We can stop guessing, trying to figure out who this king is. That he's, 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 we know who he is. It's Jesus. This is absolutely amazing. And Mark starts off with this. He says, in the beginning or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he finishes with the statement, the Son of God. The Son of God, I think, is a direct concept or a direct uh, uh, picture trying to link to Jesus' relationship to God. He's the Son of or related to, loved by, 
cared for the Father, God, Yahweh, Jehovah, that the Old Testament pictures of Jehovah or Yahweh, that he has a son. His son has been identified and revealed to us, and his son that has been identified and revealed to us is none other than the great king. It's absolutely amazing. So Mark spares no time in immediately identifying who Jesus is. And I actually think from this point forward, Mark is going to spend the remainder of the book identifying and building up this larger concept and picture that Jesus is the king. And what the king does and how the king works and how the king operates, it's absolutely beautiful as he's going to begin to develop that. The second thing that we notice is that the king's coming is predicted. Verses 2 through 3, he jumps in and he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, some of your translations might say Isaiah the prophet. Some of your translations might say the prophets. Um, Literally, um, what he's going to do now, he's going to string together two Old Testament prophecies. One is from Isaiah chapter 40, and another one is from Malachi chapter 3, two very important passages. And so the first passage that he strings together in verse 2, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, is actually not Isaiah. The first quotation is actually from Malachi. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare a way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way and make straight his paths. But what Mark wants us to understand is that the coming of Jesus, the King, the Messiah, has actually been prophesied, that God actually foretold of this many hundreds of years prior, that God spoke of this. God uh, set this sort of in the books. We would call this prophecy. That prophecy actually becomes something for us that we can look at and verify. One of the ways that we could know that somebody has some sort of ability or spiritual authority is that if they say something that is, okay, here's what's going to happen, and then if it happens exactly the way that they said, then you would look at that person and just think there's no way. There's no way that you would have known that um, outside of some sort of divine revelation. And therefore, that would be a validation of the fact that what you said is actually of God. And so what Mark wants us to understand is that the coming of Jesus, the king, the great king, was actually foretold in prophetic nature by Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Malachi. That there was a prophecy, for example, that one would come. The prophecy, for example, in Malachi was about a messenger. Now, the messenger that Malachi is prophesying of is actually not Jesus. It's John, John the Baptist. That one would come, John the Baptist, and that this one that would come would actually pave the way or prepare the way for the coming of another. And in fact, you know what? I want to read this to you. Let's, why don't we do this? Go to Malachi. It's kind of in the end of your Bibles. Old Testament, I should say. I want to read this to you. It's a great passage. I do not have it in my notes, but I do have it in my Bible. Malachi chapter 3 says this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is absolutely astounding. So those that would have been familiar with these passages... Now, again, remember, a lot of these guys were Jews to whom Mark was writing to and people that would have been reading this. So these people would have been very familiar with certain passages of Scripture. Now, I've said this before, that sometimes when the apostles and some of the writers of the New Testament would write things, they would put little statements or little phrases in their writings. Those little phrases and statements would have been equivalent to like a a hypertext, hyperlink, all right? And when you're reading a website, you see blue text, it's underlined. 
you know that that's hypertext. You click that, it's going to take you to another website of where there's, the, there's you know, a whole other website full of information that's going to unpack what that nice little link had to say. Uh, the New Testament writers wrote like that all the time. If they had the modern era with them, modern technology, they would actually just link it, all right? They would say a little phrase, a little verse, and they would link it, and they would take you to the Old Testament passage. Well, they did that in a way because they spoke to a generation of people that knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles. So when uh, Mark writes, there's a messenger that's coming, immediately the Jews that would have been familiar with that passage would have gone, gone back in their minds and think, oh my gosh, Here's what Mark's telling us, that there's going to be one that's coming and he's going to set the way, he's going to prepare the way, he's going to set the table for God, that God is coming. And that's what Malachi says, that the Lord, the actual word that's used there is Yahweh or Jehovah, the Old Testament name for God, that God himself will actually come into the temple of the Jewish people. So here's basically in short what is being communicated is that Mark setting the stage saying that Jesus, the king, is actually coming. And it's been prophesied. The Bible is actually the script. We call it the scriptures because it's a script in which God wrote. But it's a script which God wrote, but it's a script in which God also plays the leading roles in his own script. That's the beauty of the Bible. That God actually has authority and control over these things. So God can say things that are going to happen before they happen. Why? Because God already knows when they're going to happen. And so Mark is saying, this is amazing. That Jesus, the king, and his coming have been predicted long ago from the prophets. The third thing that we see is that one, not only that Jesus is the king, two, that the king's coming, Jesus is coming, was predicted. Three, we see that the king has come and that he can be found ultimately in the wilderness. This is amazing that John actually starts like this, or Mark starts like this. I think I keep slipping by saying John instead of Mark. Don't I do that? I think I'm doing that. It's not good. I don't know why. I think because I'm thinking about John the Baptist. But we'll try to keep it on Mark, the guy who wrote the book. All right. And if I make a slip, it's because I'm thinking of John the Baptist in his role right here. So what we're going to see now is that Mark, who writes the book, basically says, all right, we're going to talk about Jesus. And then in some ways, he's like, all right, hold on. Before we talk about Jesus, I got to talk about John. You're like, who's John? Like John the Baptist, John. Like first century, everybody would have known who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was this guy that we're told uh, in the very next verse that in verse four, he says, then John appeared. So in other words, he starts off and he says, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Jesus was predicted long ago in the prophets, but Jesus was predicted in the context of one coming before him who will actually pave the way, prepare the way. And then immediately uh, Mark shifts in verse four and he says, oh, by the way, I'm going to tell you about Mark, or John. John is the guy who is coming. He's in the wilderness. He's come and he's actually paving the way, preparing the way for the coming of Jesus, the king. And here's what he's going to do. He's come, and he's going to be baptizing. He's out there in the wilderness. And he goes on to tell us, and he says he's baptizing for the forgiveness and repentance of sins. And all the city of Judea, Jerusalem, had gone out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And he says, now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now this little reference to his clothing and his freakishly weird food is that He's basically making a connection that John the Baptist is completely linked 
to the, and, and is in the same league with the likes of Isaiah the prophet, Ezekiel, all these other strange, freakishly weird prophets in the Old Testament that did really strange things, spoke really weird things. And what Mark's trying to say is that John is in the same league as all these great prophets. He's one that's speaking, preparing the way for the coming, for the arrival of God. It's absolutely amazing what Mark's trying to convey. He's saying, like, I want you to understand what happened here in Israel, in the wilderness of Judea. It's not just the fact that some little prophet came, said a few pithy statements that made us feel really good about ourselves, and bailed. That what happened in the wilderness of Judea, what happened in the region of Jerusalem, was that God himself came. We saw him. We felt him. We heard him. We were healed by him. We were moved by him. And our lives have been radically changed. This is the announcement. This is the beauty of the announcement that Mark is trying to impress upon us, the weightiness of it. This isn't just some sort of historical figure that came and said some nice things. But this is actually God come in human form and he did something for us. First of all, Mark wants us to understand that the king, Jesus, came to the wilderness. And he's going to begin to paint for us how when Jesus went out to Mark, out, or John, <laughs> there we go again. When Mark conveys to us that Jesus came to John the Baptist out in the wilderness, that Jesus actually came to this area that was isolated and difficult and hard. We think of the term wilderness a lot of times. And I don't know what you actually think about when you think of the term wilderness. For me, I think of like nice forests. I think of like, I, I've been to Germany before. And Germany's beautiful. I think of forests in Germany. I've been to Scotland. I've been to England. I've seen forests there and wilderness areas there. And it's like, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Don't think that, all right? Think, if you want a more accurate picture of what wilderness is in the Bible, think that stretch of land between uh, Paso and Bakersfield. I'm not kidding. That, that's it. I, I, I know that firsthand because I've been to Israel several times. That's exactly what it looks like. There's absolutely nothing as far as you can see except like tumbleweed. All right? That's about it. Maybe a gecko. And that's about it. Like there's nothing else living out there. And John wants us to understand in his message that as he preaches this this coming of the Messiah, that he goes out into the wilderness, this area that's just barren. There's death, there's dryness, there's drought all out there and this is where Jesus comes to engage the message of John the Baptizer Um, which is very appropriate because the wilderness or the desert region is like I said, it's a place of death and dryness and drought where all your wells run dry it's a place where all your food just gets corrupted and corroded and, and, and dries up and fades away. It's a place where society can't exist. They can't survive. It can't function because there's no water out there. There's no food out there. It's a place where you just, where you die unless you have supernatural intervention. It's literally the case. And it's the way that throughout the Bible, the, the Bible actually kind of has a strange, um, ironic scenario going on all the time about the desert. And the desert is one of two things, and oftentimes people think of it like this, the desert is a place where you go to meet God. 
And others are like, no, the desert is a place where you die. And I would actually say the desert's both. It's a place where you go to die. Because there's nothing there for you. All your wells run dry. All your food is gone. All the things that you hoped were going to bring about sustaining life for you have just fizzled away and dried up and are gone. And it's the place where you cry out to God. Ironically, it's the place that God shows up. It's just like the writer of Hebrews says. He says, we still have a wilderness in which we go out and we meet God. The wilderness experience is like this. Maybe some of you have been there. It's a place of extreme testing. It's a place where you find your life stretched to the max, where you realize that every well that you've ever drunk from, hoping to bring sustaining life to you, at some point, fails you. It dries up. Every relationship you hoped, you thought, you dreamed, you fantasized, that would actually give you life, has died. It's gone away. Every food source, everything that you hoped would just feed your soul, give you something to live for, something for you to wake up and think, ah, I'm going to live for this today. Everything that you've had, you've come to this realization, it dries up, it fades away, it dies, it corrodes, it's stolen, it's gone. That's the wilderness. You've been there. We've all been there, most of us. It's ironic that as John's out there, or Mark's out there uh, sharing the story of John who's preaching out there in the wilderness and baptizing people, a lot of scholars believe that what John the Baptist is actually doing is he's reenacting sort of like a play. The story of the Exodus. The children of Israel, they came out of Egypt and they walked through water and it was this immersion, this baptism, if you would, through the depths. And then this arising out, they became new people, that they were brand new people. They belonged to God now. Once they were people that were under the oppression of evil and wickedness and sin, and now they're under the leadership of God, who's a good God who loves them and cares for them. That John's actually doing this baptism. It's another ironic thing is that John is a historical figure. That Actually, one of the early uh, church he wasn't a Christian, he, and he, he was an early church writer, historian, a guy named Josephus, actually writes about John. And he basically describes how what John's doing is unique because um, cleansing and baptism is not new. It's not new. There are all sorts of different ways in which uh, Jews and even Gentiles would purify themselves. Um, in the temple today, or in the area of the temple today, there are these uh, newly excavated regions um, on one of the sides of the temple mount, um, and there are these big baths. Uh, they call them mikvahs. And you would go into these baths and you would bathe yourself. The difference is, is that the type of cleansing and washing that you would do as a Jew that's uniquely distinct from the baptizing of John the Baptist is that the baptisms and the cleansings that you would do, you would do yourself. You didn't need somebody else helping you. You didn't need somebody else dunking you or taking you under or cleansing you or washing you. You just did it yourself. But what John's doing is he's saying, no, no, no. What we need is I will baptize you. But I'm here reflecting. I'm like a mirror. I'm pointing to one who will come after me. And he himself will baptize you. And the the uniqueness of this is that the idea is that if you've ever been into a wilderness experience of yourself, of your own life, where you found that your wells have run dry, where you found that the food sources that you thought were going to sustain you have dried up, when you found that what 
hopefully was going to be some sort of social engagement or entertainment or life-giving experience. Boyfriend, girlfriend, marriage that just died, went away, divorced you, left you brokenhearted. Whatever type of experience that you've had, you found just dry up. But oftentimes there are people that are like, you know what? I need something new for my life, so I will baptize myself into something new. I will become, I'll become religious. Maybe some of you are here today because of that. Because your wells have run dry. Your life has has dried up. Relationships that you once had and been engaged in just passed away. They died. They left you brokenhearted. And so you're like, you know what I need? I need religion. I need to be a better person. All my wells have dried up. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better person. What you're doing is you're trying to baptize yourself. What you need is somebody else to baptize you. The whole message of John is I'm just simply here to point to the one that will come after me, that will baptize you. He will change you. He will transform you. And his call, his message is stop trying to baptize yourself. Stop trying to get right. Stop trying to be religious. Stop trying to just add God into your life like a supplement. You need somebody else to come into your life, to revolutionize, to change you. And John says, he's coming. He's the king. He will set up ownership, rulership in your life, and he's a good king. He won't take advantage of you like those other gods. He won't leave your wells dry. He will satisfy you. He will satisfy deep longings in your heart that every other source that you've tapped into, looked to, longed for, fantasized over, just left you dead and lifeless. He will satisfy you. John says, I'm pointing to him. Look for him. So we see that the king has come and he can be found in the wilderness. The fourth thing that we see is that the king, that when he comes, Jesus, his path that he comes will be a path that will follow all the way to the cross. And this John starts out here, and he hints at this throughout the rest of the book, all the way to the point where, G, uh, where Jesus climaxes in his life there at the cross. And, and, and Mark's going this path. John prophesies this, talks about this, but Mark goes down this path, and he wants us to understand that there, there actually is a trajectory of Jesus' life. It's going somewhere. That it's, he's not just king who came, showed up, went to the wilderness, but he's a king that came, showed up, and is actually going somewhere. And there, he's going somewhere for a purpose. He has something on his mind, something that he's intentionally doing as he's here. He's got a mission, in other words. And he's going to tell us in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Again, he says this. We just read this, but listen to what it says again. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. And the words that are actually used there for paths or way are words that actually arise several other times. I think maybe around 12 other times throughout the book of Mark, it arises, it appears, that there's a path that Jesus is following on. Typically what would happen back in the day when a king would come into the area, come into the region, they would make straight the paths. In other words, um, you got to imagine way back in the day, and the Romans were actually masters at carving out roads. Like, there's still roads that exist today. I mean, you can go into 
uh, Scotland. I've been there and I've seen these roads. There's actually roads still in existence today. 2,000-year-old roads all the way up in Scotland, right? I mean, far away from Rome. And they're still built. They're, you can still walk on them. It's crazy. So the, the Romans were masters at building roads. But what would happen is that usually when a dignitary came into town, a king were to come into town, um, typically they would just make roads and carve them up a, you know, up a hill or whatever. But what would happen when a king would come into town, they didn't want the guy running up hills and all that. So they would oftentimes level the high places, make them flat, take flat areas where there's like big gullies and ditches, and they would fill them in. So typically when that would happen, you would imagine it takes an, a, a massive workforce of people taking care of the high places, making them low, taking care of the low places, making them high, level. Um, and usually, guess, guess who got those jobs? What do you think? Slaves, all right? So the concept of the king is coming, make sure he's paths, could be very easily interpreted as, oh, great oppression, slavery, slave labor. This is going to suck for the next few years. Not good life. But Mark wants us to understand that when this king comes, when this king comes, he's on a path. And the path that is being laid out for him is a path in which as he is the king, his path will not be ultimately to a throne ascending there. His path will be to a cross descending there. But this king is unique. He's not like any other king. He's not like a Caesar that comes and builds his pathways and his roads upon the backs of oppression and slave labor. But this is a king that comes. Not bringing judgment. See, there's a lot of Jews that were like, oh, we need the king to come because we hate the Romans and we hope when our king comes that he will vindicate us and he will bring judgment and he will lay down all of our enemies. But when this king comes, he doesn't come bringing judgment. This king comes bearing his own judgment. It's the whole path of Mark. Mark's like, I want to, I want to show you the path of this king. He is so great, so powerful, so amazing, but he's unlike any other king you've ever known, any other king you've ever been familiar with, any other king that you've identified in this world. He's not like Caesar. He's not like any other king that you would have ever thought about because he's a king that has in his path a cross. And listen to how this gets interpreted throughout the rest of the New Testament. Matthew tells us that the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word for implies his death, his ransom, his sacrifice. It wasn't for himself. It was for you. It was for me. Listen to how Matthew also says, is Matthew 26, 28. This is the blood of my covenant, Jesus speaking here, which is poured out for many. For your forgiveness. Paul the Apostle, later on in Galatians chapter 3.13, says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? Paul's going to go on to answer that. He says, because cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. That even Paul would say, yes, Jesus came. But Jesus came for a specific purpose for death, for you. Here's what he goes on to say also in Romans chapter 5 verse 6. It just puts it as simply as possibly can be. Christ died. There's the cross. For the ungodly. Remember the word Christ? It means king. Paul is so accurate in this. He says, you want to know what the type of king Jesus is? 
king, the king, the true king, died for ungodly people that have been treasonous, that have rejected his reign, rejected his authority. How great is this king? He's willing to lay his life down. How amazing is this king? He comes not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. Whose judgment? Your judgment. My judgment we deserve. This is how great the king is. The final thing that I want you to notice is this, and I'm done, is that we also see about this king, the fifth thing, is that in verse 1, and go back to the very first verse and read this, the king's coming ultimately, as he points out to us, is good news. This is amazing. Listen to how he starts off. He says this, the beginning of the gospel. Mark wants us to understand, he doesn't want us to miss this, that everything that he's about to explain from verse 1 all the way on to the very last chapter of this unbelievable storyline or narrative of the life of Jesus, is that it's really, really good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's good news. It's good news. Because the reality is, when we think about Jesus, this is why it's so important to understand that a biblical understanding of Jesus matters as opposed to the Jesuses that we are prone to devise, create, make up ourselves. Because really at the end of the day, Jesus that just gives you good advice doesn't help you. He can't save you. That's not good news. It doesn't change you. But good news does. Good advice doesn't change you. So I mean, think about this. People that come to you that all they have is good advice to tell you, hey, live according to the golden rule. Well, that sounds really nice and everything, but have you ever tried to live according to the golden rule? You're like, yeah, how'd you do? You failed every time. Like, even if you thought I did it good for like three hours, right? But what happened after the third hour? You're like, ah, I lost my temper and I did something really nasty, right? That's my point. How'd you feel after that? Really bad. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Good advice doesn't change you, but good news does. That's what the gospel is. It's not good advice. It's good news. The other thing that we also notice about this is that a role model doesn't change you. Just simply looking at somebody that's exemplary in their life, looking at them and thinking, they're amazing. Well, how do you feel when you look at somebody who's absolutely incredible? How do you feel? I mean, do you look at them and feel really inspired? Or are there moments where you feel really overwhelmed, like, I can't perfect can't do what they do can't follow their life because you know what? role models don't change you but redeemers do and ultimately at the end of the day disconnected uncaring monarchs don't change you but caring humble loving kings who are willing to go to a cross to humble themselves, to submit themselves, to serve, to lay their lives down for disloyal subjects. That changes you. You know how it changes you? It takes out the old motor of your heart that's wicked, that's bent away towards God, and it softens you. When you realize that you have a king, that what he did in coming to this earth, the good news, was not come to judge you or to destroy you, but he came to be judged for you. For you. That changes you. That does something in your heart. It doesn't make you more religious. What makes you more religious is you failing in your own standards. Failing to live up to your own oppressive 
standards and, and you think, I got to do better. I'll do better. I'll read my Bible more. I'll go to church. That's oppression. That doesn't set you free. This doesn't make you joyful. That doesn't make you want to sing. That doesn't make you want to dance and fall in love with God. All that does is make you feel bad all the time because it's bad news. But, John, but Mark starts out this whole story by saying, this is the beginning of the good news. We have a king. That king is Jesus. He has a name. That king has come. That king came out into the wilderness is where we all are. That king came and suffered what we suffer so that in exchange we can find the comfort that he gives. That king came and was judged so that we who deserve judgment don't have to be judged. That king came and starved in a sense so that we who are a part of this world starving in our souls can actually be satisfied and filled. This is the king that Mark is going to display for us. At the end of the day, what you'll see throughout the gospel, Mark, is that there's at least three types of responses that will always be given back to this Jesus, the king. There are those that are deeply offended that another rival king would come on the scene. They don't like it. Jesus uh, offends them. Jesus is a, uh, he's a threat to their power. You know what they do? They power play one up over Jesus and they kill him. Maybe that's the way some of you are today. Maybe some of you here today, that's the way that you've lived. You've thought, I don't like the idea of a God over me, so therefore I will slay him. I will just destroy him out of my mind. I will not think about him. I won't confess him. I won't live for him. There's other people throughout the Gospel of Mark that rather than killing him out of fear, they run from him because they think he's mad. They think he's angry. They don't know what to do with this king, so they run from him. But then the final types of people that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark is that there are those that acknowledge him as a good king. They acknowledge his intentions of what he's come for, and they will bend and bow and surrender their hearts in love and affection. This is kingship. Where are you at? See, the one thing that you have to understand about Jesus is you, you can't be neutral on him. You can't be. You can't hear the pronouncement, Jesus the king, and just remain neutral. You can't. You will either hate that and you will do everything in your power to destroy that. Or you will become fearful and think, oh, I'm going to run. There are things in my life that I'm ashamed of, things that I want to hide from him, things that I will get behind any fig leaf that I can. And I'll even be religious to just somehow run from God. Some of you are religious. You're hiding from God in church. That's ironic. I know a lot of religious people that do that. They think, I'll just, you know, memorize Bible verses and I'll you know, memorize charts and graphs and a bunch of other things and I'll hide from God behind a bunch of Bible knowledge, Bible trivia, and Bible verses because at the end of the day, I don't have any confidence in my own soul, so I'll run from God. I don't know what he's going to do with me, but I just want to be on the safe side and I'll be religious. religious. Or you bend on your knees and you surrender to God in your own desert and you say, God, apart from you, all my wells run dry. But apart from divine intervention, apart from you baptizing me, apart from you rescuing me, apart from you cleansing me, I have no life. You can't remain neutral. 
One of those is the responses of us, of our hearts. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. We're going to sing. Confess sin. Partake of communion. Partake of communion is a way of reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us. If you want to give, you can give. We have the donation boxes in the back. It's fine between you and Jesus. For some of you, you may need to respond by confessing sin and asking God to wash you. If you're not a Christian, I invite you. I invite you to ask God to cleanse you, to wash you of your sin. Ask him to accept you, to wash you, to baptize you, to accept you. The beauty of it is, he will. That's the type of king he is. He takes people that are treasonous, people that have abused 